On this episode of Leadership Lessons in Health System Pharmacy, you will hear from Yolanda Zepeda, Ohio State's Assistant Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion, as we address how to open the dialogue and discuss racism in your department. Hi everyone and welcome to Leadership Lessons in Health System Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Weber, Chief Pharmacy Officer and Administrator of Pharmacy Services at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Powered by The Ohio State University Lachalet Leadership Program, this show is designed to keep current and aspiring health system pharmacy leaders up to date with issues, trends, and best practices affecting our profession. You can learn more about the Lashley Leadership Program and the Ohio State University's College of Pharmacy MS and Health System Pharmacy Administration and Leadership by visiting go.osu.edu forward slash pharmacy leadership. That's go.osu.edu forward slash pharmacy leadership. In her current role, Yolanda Zepeda works to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts across the university, supporting collaborations and idea exchange among academic units, faculty, students, and staff. At Ohio State, she oversees strategic diversity planning and reporting and promotes inclusive practices in faculty recruitment and hiring. Yolanda also oversees targeted programs that promote success of students from diverse backgrounds including including Latinx students, students in STEM, and parenting students. Yolanda also directs the campus magazine, Kepasa Ohio State, a student-led publication that highlights Latinx scholarship and engagement. Okay, let's jump into our interview with Yolanda Zapata. Yolanda, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be here. Well, thanks for being here. And for the for the listeners, uh, Yolanda's done a lot of work in my department here at Ohio State, really helping us to understand the dialogue around racism. And I thought she'd be great for this show today. Uh, we've heard a little bit about your background in the introduction, Yolanda. Is there anything else you'd like the audience to know about you? Sure. I'll, I'll take a moment to give you some sense of my uh, biography, my background. Um, I'll, I'll say that the university, university life has really been my life. I um, am originally from South Texas, and um, my parents were, I, I'm Mexican-American and came from a very traditional family, and one where my parents were reluctant to allow me to go to school. And I think that reluctance was uh, had to do as much with uh, their fear that I might be exposed to ideas they didn't understand um, as as well as fears that I might um, leave home and not come back. And I have to say that the worst of their fears came true and they still love me. <laughs> I, went to, I went to Texas A&M um, and uh, earned my bachelor's degree and decided that that was the life for me and haven't left university really since then. I came to the Midwest for doctoral study and, and I've been at Ohio State um, for about 20 years, but 10 years in this role. Um, so I, I say all that because, yes, I, I was exposed to um, a lot of new ideas and experiences because of the university, and all of that has has really come together um, in the work that I do 
um, to inform or help motivate me to make education accessible for all of those uh, communities that have not really had opportunities, whether it's based on um, their own fears or um, the real structural barriers to education. But it's, um, it's a great life, and I'm happy to do all that I can to help others enjoy it. And you've been very, very helpful to my department, Yolanda, and I think our uh, listeners are going to benefit uh, tremendously from the things that, that you and I are going to talk about. So this podcast is titled uh, Establishing a Dialogue to Talk About Racism. So from, from your perspective, how, how would you define a dialogue and, and, and how would you define a dialogue that's effective and maybe a dialogue that's not so effective? Sure. So I'm really happy that you're focusing on dialogue itself. Um, there, what's really important to keep in mind when you're having a dialogue is, of course, that it's two-way. And um, when we're talking about um, dialogues around race, oftentimes we um, can bring a lot of fears that um, will prevent us from being our authentic selves and so we want to make sure, actually, that could be in any dialogue, um, mm-hmm. in any conversation that we have, we may spend a lot of time um, making sure the things that we say or the, the things we communicate with our bodies or what have you are um, going to be judged well by the receiver. And that can really get in the way of our listening. So a dialogue has to have some shared um, expectations about how um, we will listen to one another and how we will be authentic, how we can um, create a space that is uh, supportive and re- respectful. But- and so I don't mean to interrupt you, but it just a thought came to mind. So when it comes to just the topic of racism, sort of the dialogue can be intensified. The actual view of what a dialogue is can be very different than what people normally think it is because it's about racism, right? Absolutely. And there are lots of uh, notions about um, pow- power uh, differentials, power relations, that um, if they're not acknowledged, they're still there. And and so it's really important to create conditions where uh, those who are participating in the dialogue can be on equal footing with yes. one another and make sure that um, they feel that they can speak freely without... Um, um, you know, without being censored, I suppose. Yeah, that's so. Then, how? And maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit, but then how? How does a leader actually set the the environment for that that sort of neutral ground, that acceptance? Yeah. So I, I want to actually back up just a little okay, bit okay. because there's there's something there's a there's a we hear a lot of discussion about safe spaces. And um, I know that when we start having dialogues that um, raise issues that we are uncomfortable with, or that um, can maybe that are infused with potential conflict, we want to avoid those. Our tendency is to avoid them because then people don't feel safe. And I, I, I want to discourage folks from confusing a safe space for dialogue from a brave space. We're, we really encourage uh, a brave space. Let's create some spaces where we agree that we can disagree. 
where we don't feel that we we have to uh, form a consensus, an absolute consensus, or that everybody has to agree. Um, wow, you know that's a really uh, that's it's so enlightening. You know, this is why I like doing these podcasts because I always learn something. So a, a brave space versus sure. a safe space. Oh, that's that's really insightful. And it's it's really important in in a brave space that that everyone agree not to take things personally because. Um, as, as we discuss, you may say something that I find offensive, and you may say it out of the purity and innocence of your heart. Right. Um, and and if I call you out on that thing that you say, um, you shouldn't take that personally. Um, by the same token, I shouldn't take personally the things that you say that um, I, I read differently. Um, yes. So I uh, just uh, a real quick example. Um, when Yolanda and I first met, we were talking about how people refer to various people's ethnic backgrounds. And she referred to herself as a Chicano, of which I was very surprised and sort of, I wasn't really taken aback, but because when I was raised, that term was derogatory. And from Yolanda's perspective, that's a descriptive term of folks who are Mexican-American. So <laughs> Yeah, that that's absolutely right, and 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 I'm I'm smiling because uh, only a few days after that conversation, someone sent to me um, an article that didn't have any context with it, and it was it, it addressed that very notion of Chicano Chicana as a negative uh, concept, negative term, and then I realized it the I, I did a little more digging and saw that it was. Um, from the very early 70s, before the Chicano yes. power had really uh, taken hold. Which was when I was in high school, which was sort of my my, my background was you don't say that word. Uh, but so I guess the, the, you know, the point is, is that, you know, people's intentions uh, could be very positive and however could offend people, but we shouldn't really take those things personally. Right. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to, to talk with one another at all if we we're afraid uh, to offend or, or to be offended. I think an, another point to keep in mind when you have a brave space is that you invite participation, but you don't require participation. So it's participation by choice. And sometimes you may raise an issue or a question and folks will be reluctant to respond. Um, you don't have to force everyone to, to answer or address the question but ask questions that help folks think about why why are they reluctant or why do they believe the same, the things that they believe or you know to help them dig more and understand more what they're feeling but not forcing them to uh, to share because we're all in different places and feeling um, d- different levels of comfort. Yeah, and that's a uh, that's a good leadership lesson because um, when when we as a department started doing some of our facilitated sessions and. Even when I had a really small dialogue session with some of my leadership team, I would ask a question and there would be dead silence. Mm -hmm. And I would think to myself, do they not want to talk about this? Are they afraid? But what I found, to your point, was just continuing to ask questions, continuing to probe. And at some point in time, somebody feels comfortable to answer at least one of the questions, right? (laughs) Right. And if some, yeah. And, and, and then others uh, often will, will respond to that. Yeah. I mean, so that's a really good uh, lesson for our listeners in that you just need to be, you need to have a, a, I guess, an appreciative inquiry as I've been, as I've learned to really appreciate people and just inquire and ask questions 
so that they feel comfortable to talk. So. One, one, more one more point I'd like to make about the Brave sure. Space is that, um, of course, you agree to um, treat one another with respect, but I think that also deserves a little bit of attention because um, showing respect can look different across different cultures and across you know different groups. And so having some conversation about that. I was in a conversation recently where someone um, who is fairly new to the university um, made a comment about how hard it is to talk about race at this university because everyone's so polite and and um, they raise their hand and wait to be called on and um, it's and, and don't really say what they think and this person came from a more urban um, mm-hmm. setting yeah. and uh, someone else heard that and and was really offended uh, saying thinking that um, well I, I don't know they they they, they thought that Ohio State didn't care about race or people didn't want to talk about race and, and didn't value conversations about race. And that's the way they heard the message. I didn't hear it that way at all. But it was it was just the the form of uh, the, the way that we talk in the Midwest communicated something very different to someone who is coming from the outside. Interesting. So so let's say we're we're preparing for a dialogue session in our department. Should we spend some time talking about this term, brave space? Yes, I think that that would be great. And there's there's actually a a terrific article that um, summarizes uh, or or, or really unpacks these uh, points. And it's called From Safe Spaces to Brave Spaces. Um, And and their author is Arau and Clemens. Um, I'd be happy to share that uh, reference if you need that. I can tag it to the you know, to the podcast or use it as, you know, information in our, in our podcast. That's actually a significant learning for me today is the brave space concept, because I, I've, again, I've always been sort of focused on the safe space. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what's an example of an effective dialogue? It doesn't even have to be around race, but just from your perspective and situations you've been like, what's the, what's an example of something that's been effective in terms of a dialogue in a group that you so I think um, bringing folks together to share their own experiences can be very effective. So um, when uh, oftentimes I'll work with groups who you know they formed a committee and they want to address some um, either it, you know, some diversity project or maybe some other project, but they don't know each other. Mm-hmm. And I think um, having um, an opportunity to put the eye. And, you know, for each person to bring their I, who they are, I feel, what I think, what I believe, and and to learn about one another in that way, that can be very, very helpful. But I think it should be, um, it, it should have some um, structure. So, uh, for, for example, I think you did this with your team, if I recall, everyone took the um, IAT, the um, yes. Implicit Associations Test, yes. and then and then came back and talked about their own experience, what it meant to them, what they how how they uh, responded to it, and what that does is it helps to create um, a, a shared experience that the group can build on. But each person is talking is speaking from the I, not uh, talking about this is the way it is or um, this this is what 
um, you think, or this is what you should believe, or this is what you should know, but actually each person just bringing themselves and bringing the eye. And I think that can be really fruitful um, to help create a base to have these conversations. Yeah, that's, that's very helpful. So I'm assuming then, Yolanda, that uh, ineffective or not so effective dialogue is sort of the opposite of what you just talked about, where people don't focus on I, they maybe focus on a problem or a blame or so, so what would be the dialogue that's not so effective? And, and oftentimes um, when, when you have those kinds of conversations, the group may look to uh, individuals to represent uh, whole categories or whole experiences, and then they're not seeing the person, the individual. So um, I look to you, Bob, to speak for all men, and this is the way you men are. And, no. and you can look at me to speak for, for <laughs> Latinas, right? And this is the way Latinas are. And no, we, we need to um, try to remove that kind, those uh, temptations and really approach one another as individuals. So again, very, very helpful information. So, so I'm a pharmacy director and, and the, the organization has said, we have our anti-racism action plan. And the first thing we need to do is start talking about it with our departments. And so you as a, me as a pharmacy director, sit down with my leadership team and start talking about dialogue. We define sort of what's good dialogue, bad, di- not so good dialogue. Uh, and then we, we sort of, pair it down to racism per se and sort of the concepts around that. And so what what is it about racism that makes dialogue difficult at times? Well, I think for those reasons, race, so our, our history with racism is um, we have very clear roots and um, many of the institutions that we have, the way we structure opportunity, the way we structure um, the ways that we can encounter one another. If you think about every institution, our schools, our neighborhoods, our, um, our labor force, all of these institutions have been shaped by uh, ra- racism, by our oh, sure. uh, structural history, the way that we have ordered um, the value of uh, different racial groups. And so if we're, if our focus is there, uh, we are not able to understand the individuals. We're gonna stay, so we need to understand structurally what's happening. We need to acknowledge that, but it's hard to move forward because we're looking at all of these uh, larger than ourselves, structural uh, uh, precedents, I guess, and mm-hmm. we can feel so helpless. What can I yeah. do against this um, hundreds of years of, of history that has led us to this place where we are today? It's much bigger than me. I can't act. And so, so we want to think about racism and, and acknowledge that. And then we want to look at the things that, that we actually can control. How, do, how are the everyday practices that we have shaping um, the ways that we encounter each other, the ways that we value one another, the ways we hear, um, the way we reward uh, contributions. Um, I had a recent conversation, actually just this morning with someone who said that she always started her staff meetings with, how, how was your weekend? And um, then she would, she said all, all the 
white persons in the staff would say, oh, I had a great weekend. I did this and that. And uh, the black people in the team said, what do you mean? It was a lousy weekend. It was another um, person, another black person killed by police. Yeah. And so that was just an awful way to start the meetings. Right. So, yes, racism is all around us and we need to acknowledge it and, and understand those effects. But but we can't stay stuck in that place. We need right. to look at what we can do, what effects we can have in our the spaces that we are occupying and the practices that we're controlling. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. So then what the pharmacy leaders should do is to obviously get it out in the open in terms of that sort of what we talked about around what you just talked about around saying racism is actually something that is it's historical, it's cultural, it's in our roots. And we have to recognize that all of us are going to have biases, right? And um, so when we started our process, we actually were trained, we actually trained our staff to facilitate the dialogue. And so what are your thoughts about training folks to facilitate the benefits of that? And should pharmacy directors look to train some of their staff to specifically facilitate an effective dialogue? I think that is a brilliant idea because a lot of this, you know, it's not all intuitive. There are actual um, facilitation skills. There are very explicit um, things, that strategies that you can do to um, support that conversation. But there are also things you can do that, that will shut it down. And so I think training is really essential and and terrific. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have conversations with one another. We don't have to wait for an outside expert to come in and and, um, facilitate every encounter. But I do think that investing in those skills to support healthy dialogue, authentic dialogue, can um, just be tremendously valuable uh, for your teams. And we think... Well, we think about the many, many different uh, trainings that we participate in um, just through the course of our our work life. Um, If we really mean it, that we want to be uh, anti-racist, that we want to work towards um, racial uh, equity and racial justice, then we need to make real investments in, in training so that we have the skills to help us get there. Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, I, I think what, what what I was most con- concerned about was really making sure that the facilitators were comfortable to facilitate the dialogue. And so for the listener's viewpoint, uh, we, we actually uh, put together a structure of dialogue sessions that were facilitated by volunteers among the staff. And we've actually trained them using uh, resources from the Kerwin Institute at Ohio State uh, and they also had practice sessions as well, Yolanda, they, where they active, actually practiced facilitating various parts of a discussion. And so I think as leaders, we need to take the dialogue sessions uh, seriously in terms of making sure people are comfortable. And if it is a facilitated session, making sure that uh, folks are comfortable in facilitating. But I, but I do think getting back to your point about um just us being able to talk to one another about race, just in conversation, I think that's as important as a dialogue session. Right, right. and that that speaks to, so first, let me congratulate you on in investing in that facilitation. It's so empowering because then that means that uh, those leaders that you have who have raised their hand and stepped up uh, to lead those um, facilitation sessions, they um, 
don't feel like they're just out there on their own, right? They have uh, support. Well, now we've talked about uh, facilitated uh, sessions and it's important for that dialogue to happen, but what are your thoughts about just discussing and talking about racism in general conversation within the work environment? I I think it's very healthy that um, we learn how to do this, that we learn how to talk with others who have experiences that um, that may be unfamiliar to us that we don't understand. Um, that that's very healthy and we should be able to ask questions and and um, sometimes uh, the conversations can be so charged that oh you shouldn't ask this or you shouldn't say that and I I tend to be on a much more uh, forgiving and and, um, inclusive uh, side I welcome those conversations but not everyone uh, does I mean yeah. So, so I do want to offer that, that, that you have some sensitivity. Um, if there's someone who um, is from a minority group or is not uh, you know, historically underserved group or is not, um, is the only one in your unit, mm-hmm. they get tired of answering questions. So, um, you know, don't, don't use them that way. Find other sources to, to learn, but you can still have those conversations uh, within your unit. Um, yeah, so there's nothing that's really in your in your mind. There's nothing that's really out of bounds as long as it's uh, sort of a positive intent approach, or it's not obviously something. Right. That's- so, so that's and and that's who I am. I I think that if we in, if we have a broader culture of respect and inclusion mm-hmm. and sincerity, then you have more room to make mistakes. Um, and, and, but it's important that we have that. We can't just start asking questions and you never cared right. about race before and now you're you know, asking me all these questions. So, so I think fostering a, a genuine, uh, respectful and inclusive culture within your unit is, is really important. Um, but I also want, um, want to suggest that learning, um, so learning about different groups uh, can be very helpful to avoid saying some of those things that um, may unintentionally um, offend people. Offend. Yeah, yes. And and I want to offer a terrific resource. Um, Ohio State University has uh, lots of, of talent and lots of experts. And um, the Office of Diversity and Inclusion has partnered with the Office of Institutional Equity and also the Drake Institute for Teaching and Learning um, and, and with Student Life to uh, launch an education for citizenship uh, campaign. And that is the motto of the university, education for citizenship. And they have assembled tremendous resources. We have uh, uh, information resources. We have a respectful dialogue toolkits. We have lots of reading um, and, and activities to support readings. The libraries have, have curated um, readings about different groups and have created some activities that, that can help um, explore those learnings. Mm-hmm. So for any unit that is um, looking for some reading material and looking for some activities um, to learn about different groups, I encourage you to visit the um, Education for Citizenship initiative and to start exploring the resources in that site. Oh, that's a great idea. I may want to add for the listeners' uh, view uh, as well is that uh, when I first met Yolanda um, several months ago, we we talked a little bit about Ohio State's role role in really trying to address racism. And actually, Ohio State's been doing it for nearly fifty years. Correct? I mean, absolutely. That's and right. So we're, 
you have quite a track record of of really being on on the forefront. So yeah, the Kerwin Institute, which is K I R K I R W A N uh, Institute at Ohio State, has really valuable resources for our alumni uh, to go there and to to view various um, videos, vignettes, read information about uh, racism and about uh, you know in, inclusion activities, diversity. It's just just such a great website. Um, so we've we've learned a lot. To, I've learned a lot from you today, Yolanda. I really appreciate uh, the things you said, particularly around brave space, around dialogue, uh, respectful dialogue, around facilitated sessions and facilitating properly and and people's intent. And although I do I do admit one of the things that I struggle with is the pronoun issue. And mm. I, you know, I, I really try to understand people's pronoun preferences, but sometimes you, know, you don't realize how much you use different, pro, you know, a pronoun in a way that people may not like and, uh, or, or I'm sorry, may not, may not just want to be referred to in such a way. And so that, that's my biggest struggle. Uh, and remembering, uh, right, for, for me, remembering to use my pronouns, and it's important to, for everyone to do that rather than calling out someone and, and using it only when you, you know, Making guesses, right? Yes. So, uh, so kind of switching gears a little bit. Uh, I know you're you're sort of a fan of podcasts and other things because we've talked about that. What What are some of the things you're listening to, uh, reading, or whatever that have inspired you recently? Great. So I listened to a, a podcast. I, I listen to it regularly. It's um, the Code Switch podcast. Um, oh. And they explore a lot of uh, a lot of these ideas around race and identity and. Um, really compelling stuff. But the podcast, the the, the uh, episode I listened to this morning, which was the one that was released this week, was really fascinating. It was called Claimus When You're Famous. And uh, they were talking about Kamala Harris and how she has multiple identities, uh, African-American and mm -hmm. uh, South Asian. And uh, she's a first in many ways. So first uh, black woman, first woman, uh, VP, yes. first. You know. mm -hmm. And so they were talking about all of that, but then they were really unpacking the complexities around her identities. And um, the, the, the upshot of exploring her, um, all, all the complicated identities around her uh, persona, I suppose, is that I, we have um, multiple identities and they're complicated. They're, right. Our identities are not uh, binary in any way. Um, but another important point that um, set me to thinking a lot this morning was um, the notion of community. So those who were talking about her also talked about our identities uh, being very much shaped by community. And we have many different communities. We have ancestry, we have our families, we have our chosen kin, we have mm -hmm. the people in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, and all of those communities shape who we are and, and our outlook. And so uh, they're an important part of our uh, identity story. So Code Switch, it's a great podcast, really compelling stuff, always leaves me chewing on ideas uh, when I listen. So is it two words, code, C-O-D-E, and then switch, just like the light switch? Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. So to all the listeners, please uh, tune into that podcast. Uh, if, uh, if, if Yolanda thinks it's a good podcast, I'm going to tune in as well. And uh, Yolanda, it's been excellent to talk to you today. As always, I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you Thank for you. everything that you do for this university. Thank, Thank you, Thank you for Bob. everything that you do for... 
uh, our students, our faculty to help us uh, live in a society that includes everyone, not just, uh, not just some of the people. So again, thanks for being on the show and have a great day. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and an honor, Bob. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Leadership Lessons in Health System Pharmacy. And if you found this interview helpful to your own professional development, please do us a favor and share the good news with your colleagues and leave us with a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts each and every week.